electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod. Democratic presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg is facing criticism, but Joe Kernan isn't totally turned off just yet. I like Mayor Pete. When he talks, I don't immediately go WTF. Impeachment ad blitz. NBC News' Dylan Byers on who's spending what, where, and how it's impacting our democracy. Twitter was exerting too much influence on the political process. And Tesla's year in review. Vanity Fair's Bethany McLean on the company's Teflon leader. I was thinking about that Mark Twain quote, reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated, right? That should be Musk's theme song. Those stories and many more on today's podcast. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Wednesday, December 18th, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on the podcast, today the House of Representatives is getting set for a vote on whether to impeach the president. Last night, President Trump sent a scathing letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi demanding that she, quote, immediately cease this impeachment fantasy. Ahead of this historic vote, we do have the results of a new CNBC All-America economic survey with questions on impeachment and the president's handling of the economy. Steve Leisman has the details on that. Good morning. Good morning, Becky. The nation is solidly split on the issue of impeachment as the House moves towards the historic vote today. The CNBC All-America economic survey finds 44 percent of the public believes Congress should impeach President Trump. Forty five percent do not. The poll of 800 Americans conducted last week has a margin of error plus or minus three and a half percent. The split comes as a result of a deep partisan divide. Seventy eight percent of Democrats favor impeachment. Eighty three percent of Republicans oppose it. Independents oppose it by a 46 to 41 percent margin. Some Americans, though, say they could change their mind. Four percent of those who favor impeachment are open minded or say they are, as are six percent of those who oppose it. So add in the 11 percent who are unsure and you come up with one in five Americans, put all those three together, could potentially be swayed on the issue. Out of four and six equal 11. What's that? Out of four and six equal 11. No, those are separate. Oh, okay. Four percent of those. Thank you for asking that. Sometimes I never know if they're uh, understandable, these charts. But four percent of those who favor impeachment say they could change their mind. Six percent of those who don't say they could change their mind. Then the 11 percent add in or unsure. One in five Americans say they could potentially sway it on it. Now, President Trump's economic and overall approval ratings look to have rebounded from a hit they took from the start of the impeachment process back in September. These numbers are astonishing. Forty nine percent of the public approves of President Trump's handling the economy, while 40 percent disapprove. And that's a sharp rebound from the September survey, which was taken, you remember, just as the impeachment process began. The president's economic approval numbers fell underwater for the first time. 49 percent disapprove of the job the president is doing overall and 40 percent approve. It's still a net negative of nine on the approval number, but well improved from the net negative 16 in September. What's interesting about the poll is you see Americans making a distinction. 
13 percent more Democrats and 12 percent more independents like the job the president is doing on the economy than they like the job he's doing overall. Trying to go back to September. What happened in September to hurt some of his numbers? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, I've been doing this poll for a long time. Sometimes you want to be on the news and maybe sometimes you don't. We came out with this poll or we went into the field just as the Democrats said they were going to impeach the president. So what we picked up in this what, poll was years it, ago. Huh? Three years ago. The most recent. Oh, 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 oh around. I'm, I'm sorry. I get it. Well, you know why we called it the All America Survey, though? No. Which was 13 years ago. Or yeah, no, ago. you've told me this. When we started, pro- nobody yeah. could believe we were interviewing anybody but rich people and Wall Street people. It's all right. America. But this okay. is all America. Nothing to do with athletes. Right. That's why we call it that. But Not it's interesting the, the distinction that they make. And what happened to answer Becky's question is that it was a, it looks like a visceral reaction where the president's economic approval numbers took a huge hit. And we said but at there the time, was nothing going on with the economy right. at that what, point. Right? What is interesting, guys, if you don't mind very quickly, that the, the overall approval numbers, they don't change very much. This 40 yeah. percent, our Republican poster yesterday, we have a Republican Democratic poster, said for as volatile a presidency as this is, mm-hmm. right, the stability of the approval versus the disapproval is one of the most astonishing things right. that he has. That seen. gets back to the right. idea of people digging into their trenches. Yep. Right. It's, it's the it's, base versus the other base. Right. And, and you don't you did not have that kind of stability in the in the Obama presidency. That's the only place that you see stability, though. That's it, it's, it's interesting because people are just so dead set on their beliefs on this. Right. They are entrenched. They are dug in. It's the tribalism playing out. It is fascinating, Becky how narrow the window is to get those majorities. If you notice, there is not a majority for impeachment. There's a dead split at 44-45. One in five Americans are in play here. We cannot uh, underestimate the effect of that 266 on that Friday. And if that were to be... For the jobs number. Yeah, for the 266 job number on that Friday. If that were to be reversed, that came out, and even the mainstream media picked up those numbers, and, and that... That was such a block. The, the, and there were some wage gains. And the headlines have gone in the economy. Three and a half on and the, the economy has gone That brought us to three and a half, which brought That's us true. to the 50-year lows, yeah. which, you're, which you're, could you're, hit the headlines. Joe is absolutely right. Mm-hmm. The jobs number. numbers have good headlines. The stock, the stock, stock market, market too, yeah. Yeah. for, for a, a country where only like 50 or 55 percent of the public actually owns stocks, the extent to which the stock market influences their views on the economy right. no, it's a is astonishing. It's a 50, was it 50 highs that they hit? The we have 56% in, in, the, in the poll. Again, I'm jumping the gun on tomorrow. They see those headlines, and it sinks Aztecs into their sentiment 33% for the year. about how, what they view on the economy. And it also sinks into their views on how much they should spend for, for, for the holidays. All right. That's a good tease for tomorrow. Tomorrow. Thank you. WeWork has reportedly secured a financial lifeline, this time from Goldman Sachs. The bank is said to be giving the struggling office-sharing company a new line of credit worth nearly $1.8 billion. Now, this is part of SoftBank's bailout for WeWork that was announced in October. I should say uh, some of this, though, is secured uh, in a way that, from my understanding of it, puts Goldman at the top of the stack in terms of in terms of getting the buildings, if they... In terms of as a creditor. Well, no, no, because remember, but, WeWork doesn't getting, own the buildings. Well, what are they, well, they own some of them, I thought. I thought Adam Newman, or Those he bought some buildings, and he, built, and he um, sold them but, back. But I, but I think that what you're talking about here is I think it's actually... I, I don't know the specifics of how it's detailed, but in terms of the credit stack, they go first. They, what do you they become get, preferred. What's, uh, you, you become the well, to the extent you believe creditor. the companies were... I don't know. By the way, maybe, maybe 
there's some guarantee against SoftBank itself. I don't know. But what I was going to suggest is, unless you, unless you fundamentally think that WeWork is worth zero, um, well, it, there, there might be an underlying business there that you, you would get. There's got to be assets related That's to That's what I wonder. What are the assets if it's not the buildings, right? Uh, it's, it's a good question. It's a very good question. But somebody's believing something here because $1.8 billion is not nothing. That's why I wonder if you're right about SoftBank. In terms of how it it's guaranteed. Yeah, right. Eli Lilly's uh, CEO is firing back at presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren. The senator released a survey on Monday that found 83% of pharmacies did not have Lilly's cheaper insulin. And in some cases, pharmacists did not inform customers that a cheaper version was available. Speaking with Jim Cramer on Mad Monday, uh, uh, Mad Money yesterday, Lilly CEO David Ricks disputed the senator's accusation that the drug maker failed on its pledge to provide patients with lower-priced insulin. That's nonsense. Nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there two senators, uh, there's only a hundred of them. Well, look, I, I haven't read the details of the report. Okay. I read their press release. Okay. I can tell you what the facts are today. Many policymakers encouraged us to just lower the price of insulin. Right. We did that. We launched a half price of our best-selling product, but only one out of four Americans with Part D coverage and in commercial coverage next year will have access to this. This doesn't show that we didn't try. We did try. You can order this product today from your pharmacy. This shows what's broken in the rest of the pharmaceutical system. I don't understand that. So they, the senators say it's not available in 83% of the pharmacies. Right. He says it's only available in 75% or something, but you can order it from your pharmacy. Maybe people don't know about this program. You know, the, 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 the entire system is pretty hard to understand. It's pretty yeah, opaque, it's, yeah. isn't it, with uh, you know, all the, the drug distributors and Cardinal Health. and every, A lot of people, especially in rural areas, they, they're nowhere near a pharmacy. It comes in the mail. And- no, right, and, and that's where some of these health care plans have been pushing you. Like if you were part of CVS, they right. tried to push you to only get your, your prescriptions online or filled through the mail. It becomes a very important part uh, uh, of your life. And I, I, it is, as you know, nothing, thank God, nothing yet uh, for me. But uh, down the road, it's, you even need a little... Pillbox to keep yeah, it straight. just to make sure right. which ones you've taken. There is a new service, by the way, not so maybe new, maybe two years old, three years old in New York City, called Capsule, where they messenger the, and it, but it all comes in the little packs. It's all organized. But see, the, the Joe's right to the point that it is much more difficult in rural areas. Yes. Even even in this area, I've had trouble at times finding the right Place, drug in right. the pharmacy when you have you know fifteen thousand to choose from. Right. I can imagine how much more difficult it is in rural areas where there are, there is no choice. Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg uh, facing a backlash after his campaign omitted more than 20 high-level fundraisers from a list of top bundlers it disclosed last week. Now, a Politico report found the campaign left some key names off that disclosure list, including Boston power broker Jack Connors Jr., La La Land film producer Jordan Horowitz, and Wall Street super lawyer and uh, guest on this show, Rajan Cohen. Uh, the Buttigieg campaign released the list in response to a feud with Senator Elizabeth Warren's campaign over transparency. The Buttigieg campaign said it made an error and would update its list of bundlers. Buttigieg has been tagged Wall Street Pete by protest groups who showed up his, at his campaign events uh, uh, to oppose his reliance on big money donors to fund his campaign. Um, of course, Rajan Cohen, as we all know, was, is, is, is the lawyer to all the big Wall Street banks, but I'm not sure that that this is, is a look, sign of what's going on. Bernie Sanders and, and Jordan Horowitz, have... by the way, I should say, is an old friend of mine, grew up in Scarsdale, New York. He's a producer of La La Land. 
I would not put him on uh, some kind of... Uh, Wall Street list? Wall Street list. It's Scarlet Letter. I mean, we just had Raj Cohen on. He's so woke. He's like the wokest guy. We just had him on talking ESG. Yes. He was so woke, he was saying all the right things. He, you woke people got to get... You got to decide which woke is more... You know, which woke takes more... Um, well, priority over the other woke. The, so this is the old woke. Well, have, he's unwoke because of his this horrible. Is the most, this is the left of the left <laughs> I know. Of the part of the I understand. Win, the, Just get it together. I, I ask our producer for a flow chart. I need to know which woke uh, preempts or supersedes other woke. So do I like him now? He's ESG. I thought I'd like him. Now he's with, you know, he's with Pete. I thought I liked him. I and now thought- I don't like him because I remember he was a bad boy during the financial crisis. So it's just give me a flow I chart. I thought that of the candidates you would have liked. <laughs> I like Mayor Pete. He's, he's the one that actually. But the way he talks in his actual policies, he's not very moderate, but he's very I think he's you know, very impressive guy. And, he, you know, when, it, when he talks, I don't immediately go WTF, like half of them, when they're talking. I do. <laughs> no more your teasing. She's telling me to move on. Coming up on the trail of the big ad spending surrounding impeachment. As the House gets set to vote, who's laying out cash and why? The Wall Street Journal's Emily Glazer on tech, politics, and spending. Politics are front and center for Facebook in a way that they have never been before. Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Our next story, the impeachment ad blitz. On one side of things, we have Republican groups spending more than $10 million on impeachment ads. They're going after House Democrats in red districts that they view as vulnerable. These ads are, of course, meant to energize the base and solicit donations. On the other side of the aisle, a new ad campaign from House Majority Forward. Since the summer, that group has spent $5 million in ads. But Mike Bloomberg steals the political ad show. He has donated $10 million to a Democratic super PAC to provide more support for red state Democrats. And that money hasn't even been spent yet. You'll probably see another wave of impeachment ads as the trial in the Senate draws closer. Now, we can't really talk about impeachment and political ads on a business show and not discuss the tech players with a crucial position in American politics. So here's Andrew kicking off a conversation on the intersection of Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Capitol Hill. You'll hear our team, two guests, and Elon Moy, one of CNBC's reporters covering the impeachment process. The Wall Street Journal says a rift has developed among senior leaders at Facebook over how to respond to criticism of the company's impact on U.S. politics. According to The Wall Street Journal, Facebook's first major outside investor, Peter Thiel, is actually at the center of this debate. Sources tell the paper that Thiel is advising CEO Mark Zuckerberg to stick to his guns and continue accepting politicians' ads without fact-checking them. Uh, Joining us right now for more on this story, the one who broke it, Emily Glazer, uh, one of the authors behind that journal story. Also joining us is Dylan Byers this morning, senior media reporter for NBC News and MSNBC and author of one of my favorite newsletters, The Buyer's Market. Uh, Good morning to both of you. Emily, let me start with you. You know, there, there seems to be a rift from what I, I gather, both in terms of uh, what, what I've heard, but, but you're reporting directly that you have Peter Thiel on one side and you have other board members on the other side 
who seem to who, who seem to actually oppose the way Mark Zuckerberg is approaching this issue. Indeed. So there are actually both uh, senior officials, executives and board directors on one end of it and then Peter Thiel on the other. Peter Thiel is saying when it comes to politics, stay the course, Facebook, um, especially over political ads, whereas other senior officials really want more changes right now. And so uh, the big question uh, I have to ask, and I'll, I'll go to Dylan on this, is, Dylan, when you think about Peter Thiel's perspective, is it a principled view or is it a political view? Because clearly, I don't want to say clearly, I know I'll get in trouble for saying this, it feels like if they were to change their policy, um, the policy may help one side more than the other. Maybe that's a polite way to say it, Dylan. Look, I I would argue that when it comes to Peter Thiel, it is actually a principled view. I don't think his conservative politics are a mystery to anyone. Indeed, I think sort of the frustration with the rift that he's caused among leadership and among the board stems from the fact that he's conservative and that makes him an outlier in Silicon Valley. Uh, but no, I do, I do believe that this is actually principled. And by the way, I think you would see many uh, progressives, many liberals, including even Senator Elizabeth Warren, who would argue that changes to the political ad policy are not so clean cut uh, as Facebook's critics would suggest. I think after Twitter chief Jack Dorsey went out and, and put a ban on political ads, it became very clear how sort of complex and nuanced that issue was and how hard it was to implement a blanket ban on political advertising. Look, I think Peter Thiel has been a a close advisor and a voice in the ear of Mark Zuckerberg for several years. I don't think that's new. I also don't think the political rifts that he's causing among the board are necessarily all that new. Netflix chief Reed Hastings uh, stepped down uh, reportedly due to frustrations with Peter Thiel's politics. Erskine Bowles uh, similarly stepped down from Facebook's board, probably for the same reasons. Uh, so this is a, this is significant. At the same time, I think what we have here is we have a chief executive who is looking for a, a broad base of opinions across his advisors and across his right. board. And one of them, Peter Thiel, who's been with him for a long time, is an influential right. voice in his ear. Hey, Emily, what's your take, though, in terms of do you think there's going to be a shift in terms of Facebook's policy? Obviously, we've seen what Twitter has done. Uh, we've seen what Google has done. Do you think that there's going to be real movement? I do. I think that there are likely going to be changes. We reported that the other week, at least when it comes to political ads. And Facebook has said they're looking for possible changes. I don't think they're going to ban them altogether. That would be surprising. And I also think what I've heard from reporting is they're taking their time to figure out the best approach. Um, We know one area they're looking at is targeting and how specific you can target. That's something where both Twitter and Google made changes as well. And in terms of, you know, what Dylan mentioned before about... um, tension and changes in terms of what Peter thinks versus others on the board. I think what's important about this right now is, yes, Peter has been an advisor to Mark for quite some time. Um, he's, there have been different voices on the board for quite some time. But politics are front and center for Facebook in a way that they have never been before. Mm. And it's not just political ads. There are a lot of issues here with privacy, security, transparency. And so we're really at this cross-section Uh, where the board we know is disagreeing and senior officials are disagreeing on a number of issues related to politics. Hey, Elon, back in Washington, how how do these issues play in terms of how you think political leaders and regulators look at Facebook, given that they're the target of, of an investigation that's ongoing? Yeah, I think that the Facebook platform is incredibly important uh, both to the candidates 
and to President Trump himself. I mean, even though Facebook has said that uh, political advertising is negligible to their bottom line, we were just looking at some data that showed that President Trump has spent over $2 million on impeachment ads on Facebook alone just since the impeachment inquiry was announced. So this is a really important way for them to reach and energize their voters. And I think that... Let's let's have an honest conversation. And I'd open it up to the rest of the panel. Let's have an honest conversation, Uh, at least in my view. If they were if Facebook were to shut down the advertising, uh, not just of the president, but political advertising across the board, you would have an outcry. And how would that outcry manifest itself? And I'd ask this of Emily and Dylan in terms of regulators ratcheting up whatever you think is going on in these investigations right now. Wouldn't you imagine it gets worse? And don't you think that plays into the thinking in terms of what they are going to do one way or the other? They're already doing the investigations, right? They're already investigating Facebook over antitrust concerns. Uh, Macon Delrahim said, I think it was last week, that he wants to wrap up the DOJ's investigation, you know, by the end of next year or sometime next year. So these are already moving at a rather rapid clip. You don't think it moves any? You don't think you don't think the outcome changes based on what they do? We already know how President Trump feels about Facebook. (laughs) He's made it very clear. I don't know that additional changes would ratchet up the pressure even more. It is already clear that this administration has a spotlight on these companies. Hey, Dylan, you, and you agree with that? They're, they're investigating no, I, very closely. I, I don't. I respectfully disagree. I think, that, I think that making changes to the ad policy would increase the regulatory pressure because all of a sudden you would have a lot of lawmakers asking right. why Facebook should be making decisions about what people can and cannot say in political ads. Again, I would encourage people to go back to the decision that Twitter chief Jack Dorsey made. He came out and said this, and he was celebrated for 24 hours for, for putting a blanket ban on political advertising. When he actually implemented the policy several days later, that isn't actually what it looked like because it was too hard. It was too murky. There, Twitter was exerting too much influence on the political process. And the ultimate effect, not on Republicans, but rather on Democrats and on small groups uh, uh, and the, the ability of that policy to help entrenched powers I, I think all of those complexities became very clear to people. So, no, I don't think you can institute a blanket ban uh, on political advertising. And, and I don't think lawmakers would be particularly pleased with Mark Zuckerberg dictating uh, uh, what political candidates can and can't say in political advertising. Emily, final word to you. I agree with Dylan, but I do want to point out that there is a difference between banning ads altogether, um, which is more or less what Twitter did when it comes to political ads, versus potential changes at Facebook that might be tweaking what is or isn't allowed, such as changes to targeting, whether or not they require citations um, for fact-checking, like cable uh, companies do, cable networks. So I think right now we definitely want to wait and see. We know there's divisions. We know there's disagreement with the senior levels. um, And this isn't just on politics, uh, political ads. This is on a whole bunch of matters. So I think uh, it's a wait-and-see moment for sure. Okay, uh, Emily and Dylan on the West Coast, thank you. And Elon uh, in Washington this morning, thank you as well. Next on Squawk Pod. It's going to be hard to kill Tesla, flat out kill it, right? Somebody is going to want it. Teflon Tesla, how and why Elon Musk keeps bouncing back and whether that trend continues in the decade ahead. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. This is Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Hugh. Good morning and welcome back to Squat Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. It has been quite a year for Tesla. Elon Musk has had battles with the SEC. He's unveiled two new car models and the company's most recent earnings report actually sent the stock soaring after reporting surprise profits. Since hitting the lows back in June, that stock is up nearly 70 percent. Joining us right now with a review of Tesla's Teflon year is CNBC and Vanity Fair contributor Bethany McLean. Also, Colin Rush, who is managing director and senior research analyst at Oppenheimer. Um, I'm going to start with you sure. first, Colin, just because you've got an outperform rating on the stock still. It's up 70 percent from its lows. You think they've made it through the most difficult days? Uh, you know, we, we do think they have. Um, you know, the production issues that they kind of foisted upon themselves were unnecessary. Uh, and I think they're actually hitting their stride in terms of manufacturing costs and, and driving those costs lower. So hearing about the, the potential price reduction in China, in our view, is just an endemic of uh, their ability to drive costs out of the, the production process. And uh, we think they're going to pass that, uh, that profit on to consumers. Bethany, the big question is, look, he had a surprise earnings beat, uh, better, much better numbers than had been anticipating. Can he follow that up in the next quarter? I guess, has he bought himself more time? Or is he setting a standard that he's not going to be able to meet? Well, he, for sure he has bought himself more time, which is what Musk has excelled at, um, and which I think I was thinking about that Mark Twain quote, which maybe Twain didn't say it, but reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated, mm-hmm. right? That should be Musk's theme song, essentially. And as long as he can keep pulling out quarters that can drive the stock higher, um, he keeps buying himself a lifeline. People who have dug into the numbers behind the third quarter um, would argue that they aren't quite as good um, as they appear on the surface. And you have to remember that last year at this time, Musk promised that Tesla would be profitable on an earnings basis and a cash flow basis going forward. And like many of Musk's promises, um, said profits and cash flow did not materialize. What, uh, what are the numbers behind the numbers that, that concern people? So just the games that were played in order to produce, arguably, in order to produce profits in the third quarter and, and cash flow, and are those sustainable? And with the um, expiration of the electric vehicle tax credits coming, what, you could ask a question about what that might mean for the stock as well. Colin, what's the answer to this question? And I, I would disagree with, uh, with that assessment. You know, if we look at what's going on with Daimler right now and the, the changes in Europe in terms of emission standards, Tesla's got a billion dollars of um, just free cash coming from credit sales in Europe that no one's really accounting for in their models going forward. Uh, and, and that we see coming forward for a couple of years. Um, uh, you know, secondarily, that, that in terms of consumer demand, I'll let you finish your second point in a moment, but let's just focus on that first point. If you're profitable because you are selling tax credits, that's back to Bethany's point. Can you be profitable without the tax credits, whether they come from Europe or the United States? Can you Clearly be profitable they, just of your own right? You, you know, they're, they're at a point where volumes are high enough that they can be profitable uh, without the tax credits. But uh, we're saying that there's another billion dollars of cash available to them 
over the next two years, if not longer, given where the European OEMs are. You know, and, and at this point, uh, there's an awful lot of leverage as you scale up volumes uh, on, this, uh, on this platform, and they've shown that they can control operating costs. That was your second point, yep. the operating costs? So, Bethany, coming back to that, if they're big enough, if they can do this, if they've ridden out the hardest parts, if, are, yes. the shorts, are the shorts <laughs> disappearing at this point? Because this has always been a stock that's been so heavily shorted. Are yes. they willing to come back in? The, the, the shorts are still there. Look, this is, a, this is a religious battle, right, between shorts yeah. and longs. And people say, well, it doesn't matter. The company's performance will tell the truth at the end of the day. But it, but it won't. It's kind well, of a, won't it, it, Why do you say it won't? Because as long as Elon Musk can maintain access to the capital markets, he's got a chance to pull it out. Right. Um, if he loses access to the capital markets, then the entire story changes across the board. And so the stock price literally influences the future of this company. As long as there are enough believers and Musk can raise capital, I wouldn't... I wouldn't count them out, right? It's if it's if that, that shuts down, that then 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 the story changes. So that's why the battle is so pitched because because it literally influences the future. It's not just a stock race. He's there, got to feed the beast for how, what, for ten years. Yeah, what's the path? For 10 years, he feeds a beast. When does well, the beast start feeding him? <laughs> well, that's the question, right? It goes back to Colin's point. Are the profits sustainable? Are they not sustainable? If the profits are sustainable, then, then the debate goes away, right? Because then he doesn't need the right, access right. to the capital markets any, anymore. What, how, how long is, is it? So uh, show me the do, chart. Do you, do you believe Musk? Do you not believe Musk? What? I don't, I don't think this is about Elon anymore. I, mean, I, I think this is about what's going on in the market with cars. You know, at pre, uh, Consumers are going towards premium and sustainable uh, solutions. They're willing to pay for that sustainability. Secondarily, you know, we've had four of the last five quarters have been profitable with a, a fair amount of cash flow. They've got $5 billion of cash on the balance sheet, um, you know, and they're growing with an awful lot of operating leverage. So my, I think your, your point was relevant a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, and now it's just not. Like, I, I think the car market is moving. They're ahead of the game versus all their competitors. What's sustainable and about even bigger SUVs and trucks? But, you know, if you looked at that truck, we're not counting on that as not the, that as, as the driver. We're talking about what people are buying right now. They're That's in America. Big. I mean, you've got to look at it on, on a global basis. You know, people are buying smaller cars, efficient cars in Europe. We think they've got a lot of growth in Europe. We think there's an awful lot of demand in the U.S. as they've demonstrated for both the Model 3 as well as the Model S and Model X. And, and they're continuing to put numbers up in terms of sales volume and, and gross margins. So I'm not sure what the debate is about, you know, their sustainability versus what's going on with the automakers. Is the question a sustainability question or is the, sustainability, or is the question really a multiple question at this point? I think that's it's a multiple question. I, I think it's a multiple question. story. Because we've got a debate around uh, technology evolution within the auto market. We're seeing what's going on with GM in terms of having to right. reconfigure all their technology and their manufacturing base. Daimler's laying off 10% of their management team, you know, not right. being able to meet emission standards. The Taycan came out with 200 miles of range. It's, you know, it's a subpar uh, you know, solution or, or product versus what's going on at Tesla. Like, I, I kind of don't see the arguments here. I would argue there's still a sustainability question. About um, whether but, it can just exist. About, about how sustainable the profits are going forward right. and whether Musk is going to need to raise, whether Tesla is going to need to raise capital again. So I would argue there still is a sustainability question. But I think um, the next, and I would argue there's still a question live, over the production. or to grow. Because living and growing are two different things, and that's why when I said multiple issue, yep. the multi- you get a multiple for growing. You don't necessarily get a multiple for living, but you right. also don't go to zero for living either. I, I think it's going to be hard to kill Tesla, flat out kill it, right? Somebody is, going to, somebody is going to want it. But the growth question is a big one, and I still think there are questions around how sustainable the production actually is and whether they can pull it off because they've made a lot of promises thus far, and everything you're saying hinges on their ability to actually produce. You know, we're over $400 on the price target, and really it depends on, I think, the, this growth works. question. Based on future operating leverage, you know, we're looking at over $20 of earnings on this What's company. What's your comp? 
Uh, yeah, tell me what the comp is. This is, a dis- this is a disruptive company in the, in the market. I'm saying, what, what automobile maker do you know? Well, you're, t- you're talking about two different things. If you're talking about automobile, automobile maker or you're talking about innovative uh, transportation company, because we're talking about autonomous when you look at the multiple out, in the out years. And we have issues with what they're doing in terms of testing on their customers. Like that's, I don't, I'm not convinced on that from a moral basis. You okay. know, but I do think they have a huge advantage in terms of miles driven uh, right. on the road with their vehicles. we got to run. Okay. Thank you both for being here. Good to see you. you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. And all of a sudden I was thinking, well, I still have time. We don't have time. You know, it's like the 18th or 19th today. So, I mean, the end, the 18th, is one or the other. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod for free. What a bargain. Wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.